I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, an hour about the science of learning. Because it turns out it's not just talent or intelligence that matters. When you give people tools to learn more effectively, in many cases it, it shows outcomes that are more important than intelligence. Then, whether it's English, Mandarin, Norwegian, learning a language is difficult. Really, really difficult. There's many reasons to believe that language isn't learnable. Pretty much the only reason to believe that it is is that people do. And finally, what can the former Soviet Union teach us about math? In the classrooms, our main question is why, not how, but why. What is the logic behind every concept? That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. We're on the cusp of a new year, and before we get comfortable in it and the excitement fades away, we've set a modest goal for ourselves. Think better. Having the facts and memorizing those facts still remains really, really important. Many of us, if we could, would improve at something this year. Mandarin or basketball or JavaScript or whatever. The math that I'm learning now has a lot to apply to aeronautics, especially in the geometry part of it. This week, we'll look at the science of learning, try to understand why a new approach to math has suddenly become popular in the U.S., and investigate why kids are so darn good at absorbing languages. But first up, darts. About a decade ago, two researchers at the City University of New York decided to teach high school girls darts. And one of the big questions that loomed was, how do you get someone to pick up a new skill? So they divided the girls into three groups. One was told, just do your best. The second was told, try to hit the bullseye. And the third was told, here's a way that you can move your arms that will really help. Hold your elbow close to your chest. uh, Use three fingers. This type of kind of very basic knowledge about how to throw darts. So, okay, three groups. Obviously, no one was told anything that made them inherently more brilliant or more athletic. The kids threw the darts, and the researchers paid close attention. And what they found, to a degree, isn't surprising. They found that folks who got some very basic instruction on how to learn, how to engage, scored much, much higher. I mean, out of the charts. Ulrich Bozer is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and the author of the book Learn Better. When I went to go interview one of the researchers who had conducted the study, she still had the darts in her office because the scores were so high. And I I think what it underscores more broadly is that there is a lot of conventional wisdom about how we learn, how we learn effectively. And a lot of that conventional wisdom is wrong. And when we get research, when we get information on how to learn effectively, we can learn much better at, at much higher rates. Bozer has spent much of his adult life obsessed with learning, partially because he struggled with learning as a kid. I managed to repeat kindergarten. I spent some time in special education. In one January day in the mid-1970s, within a 45-minute period, I managed to not read my own handwriting, copy off a neighbor, get in trouble for not being able to do some basic math. I know this because there was a psychologist sitting in the back of the room just taking notes on all the ways in which I was unable to 
to learn. So right from the beginning, Bozer was confronted with a problem, his own, and it started him on a search for solutions. He has written for Education Week, U.S. News & World Report, and lots of other publications with a focus on learning. He's chased down research on whether you should tell your kids they're smart, whether using highlighters when you read is effective, and why facts matter, even in an age when you can Wikipedia pretty much anything. Bozer says the conventional wisdom used to be that learning ability was innate, like height or eye color. So for some, the thinking was, well, why bother studying learning in the halls of academia if there's nothing you can do to change it? We've long been fascinated by intelligence. It's a huge discussion in our society. And I want to be clear, intelligence exists. Some people have higher levels of IQ than others, and it does predict some important things. And when we talk about intelligence and when you ask people, you know, what is intelligence, you get different answers. But one of the answers that you often hear is people are able to reason more quickly. They have faster working memory. They're able to learn skills in more effective ways. And so we know intelligence exist. But at the same time, how we learn subjects, how we engage, whether it's golf or physics or darts, can make a tremendous difference. And and I think separating those two things out are really important. In other words, we can use specific approaches to learning to kind of bootstrap our fundamental capabilities and, and learn better. And are there things, just a couple of things that you think wow, these should really stop and make us think and maybe think differently about our our ideas about learning. Yeah, absolutely. There are quite a few of them. I often work at a university not far from where I live, and I see students using highlighters all the time. And there's very little evidence on highlighters that highlighters work. Hmm. And largely the issue is that they're kind of a passive way to learn. And Certainly, we've all had that experience where you can remember back to college those folks who would highlight everything in a book, right? Just kind of leave one or (laughs) two words sort of, you know, not in yellow or green. And it underscores that highlighting is this can be a very passive process. We would be much better off forcing ourselves to generate to really be more active learners. And so if you're reading an article and you have to speak about it to uh, your board that night or you read an article and you're going to be tested on it the next day, you know, putting away that material and just reciting uh, to yourself or writing down a summary is, is a far more effective way to learn. And it's not just highlighting. So another more passive process is rereading. I wrote this whole book arguing for these more effective types of learning. And recently I was preparing for a talk and I was in a room all by myself and I found myself rereading my own notes. And I thought, oh my gosh, I can't believe, you know, I wrote this whole book arguing for more effective ways of learning, for quizzing yourself, really pushing yourself. And then I'm in a new situation where I'm practicing for something and I resort to these old, more passive ways. And for me, it's shed some light on, I think, why we engage in these more passive ways of learning is that they're more comfortable, they're easier when you're practicing for a talk. You want those notes in front of you because they make you feel comfortable, kind Mm -hmm. of like an an old blanket. But really, we're much better off, especially when we know a topic fairly well, to to produce it, to generate it, to really engage in it in these more effective ways. When, you know, if somebody's trying to learn something, if I'm trying to learn Spanish or a kid's trying to learn the multiplication tables, people will often say to you something like practice makes perfect. If you were advising somebody who was saying to you, look, I'm trying to learn this thing, what would you say to them about how best to do that? 
The first thing I would say is that practice alone doesn't make perfect. Some forms of practice are much more effective than others. And just doing something day in and day out without really deliberating on it, without really having goals or instruction or even some real engagement isn't going to work. We have lots of research on this. Uh, I like to give the example of driving. I've been driving since I was 17, probably have clocked a million miles since then. And I have not gotten better at, at driving. I still struggle with parallel parking. I get nervous when it snows. I don't get into those curves correctly. So you know, one thing I would say is just, you know, doing something is not learning. And then, you know, when we start to think about getting better at learning, one would be start setting some goals. Say to yourself, okay, today I'm going to, if we were getting better at driving, going to practice on, you know, parallel parking. And I'm uh-huh. really going to focus on that. Educators, teachers, mentors, getting that type of feedback, really important. And then there are, you know, lots of other uh, approaches. But first, actually saying, hey, I'm going to get better at Spanish. I'm going to get better at golf. And I'm going to set some very discrete goals for myself. Lots of evidence that that even beginning phase of setting goals is, is a great way just to get started. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm speaking with Ulrich Bozer. He's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and author of the book, Learn Better. You talk about, you say there's this kind of multi-step process to really effective learning. But I, I want to talk for a minute about the first step in it, which is to value what you're learning. If somebody's learning something, you know, like calculus or, you know, the history of Greece or something. And they're learning it because they're being told to not not or or they're learning a new computer program because like their employer said they should. How do you value something that's not it's not your hobby. It's not like your intrinsic passion. How do you think about that kind of thing? Yeah, it's a great question. I find it really fascinating myself. And what ends up being really important is thinking about that type of motivation as a one way street. I think We often think about motivating people about that new accounting system or some technology at work that if we sprinkle a little something interesting on top, you know, some pop culture references like Justin Bieber, that suddenly will spark people's interest. (laughs) And you can see this. Why not? You can see this in a lot of colleges, right, where they're like, we're not going to study statistics. We're going to study baseball statistics. And this is just going to, you know, drive people towards it. And what a lot of research has shown is that motivation is this one way street. And so what teachers or other educators or even folks kind of trying to motivate employees is you really try and find where other people are going to find their own interests. So a very specific intervention that has replicated in a number of different situations is to just ask someone if they're learning about statistics, for instance, which sometimes doesn't really spark that innate interest, ask them to take a little time to write a few paragraphs about when they might think about using this. And a lot of people might never come up with baseball. Many people might just talk about their own careers. If they want to become a nurse, they might talk about uh, mortality and probabilities within that. They might talk about how they're going to teach their own kids how to think about statistics. That is a far more effective way to get people motivated because they're really finding their own meaning in that material. Mm -hmm. They're really finding their own way to, to find value in that engagement. When you think about the science of learning and all the research we've talked about, plus a whole bunch more, do you feel like schools, whether it's elementary school, high school, college, uh, that they have benefited and sort of implemented this research as it's come out in the last few decades? 
there is a, a very large gap between what the research says and what schools are doing. Teachers, to be clear, are, are not to blame here. A lot of it has to do with the, the structures around schools. But just to give a very simple example, there's a lot of evidence that when we mix up our practice, we're going to learn a lot more. So people shouldn't, when they're practicing something, repeat the same thing over and over again. But I have young children. One of them is in elementary school, and she gets these uh, worksheets home, and those worksheets really have her doing the same problem again, again, again. There's lots of research that shows that mixing up your practice. So if you want to get better at the piano, you shouldn't just play Bach over and over and over again. You should play some Beethoven, then Bach, then Mozart. So that you mix up your practice far more effective. Hmm. Um, you mentioned a piece of data that I found really interesting, and I think parents, teachers would all find it maybe um, a little bit concerning. But people often say, or are often do praise kids for being smart. You yeah. question that idea that we should praise kids and. That we should ever say, you know, like, you are so good at math or, or whatever it is. I had this experience just yesterday. I was at my child's parent-teacher conference speaking with one of her instructors and was describing students as smart. And I, I myself wanted to stop them. Look, certainly smarts exist. But the issue is that when we tell people they're smart, we give them, in the language of the literature, this fixed mindset and that means anything that they apply themselves that requires some level of intelligence, they might see as a test to reaffirm that they are smart. So if they do poorly on a math exam, if they do poorly on a French exam, it might suggest that they are not smart or not. Mm -hmm. We're much better off, this is work by Carol Dweck, having a growth mindset, which is the more that we practice, the harder that we do, the more that we're going to, to learn. And this is really important when it comes to learning because we know that the more that you struggle, the more that you learn. So in my mind, really focusing on the process. So to go back to that example, instead of saying, oh, you're so smart at math, say, oh, I really love the way that you tried hard on this problem. I could see here that you probably didn't focus enough on, on details. Maybe that's an area focusing on details you can you know learn from a little bit more. So focusing on kind of learning strategies and approaches as opposed to kind of outcomes or these types of, of labels, I think is, is far more effective. How do you think that what we know now about learning um, intersects with the way that work has changed? I mean, there's a lot of people who've talked about the fact that, like, facts are not that hard to get anymore. You know, it's very easy. I could very quickly find out, you know, how many miles there are between the Earth and the moon. It's not that crucial for me to remember it or who the 10th president was. Um, but the nature of work has changed. And I just wonder, like, how you think what we've learned about learning factors into a really new way in some ways that jobs are structured. Yeah. Let's unpack this a, a little bit. One, there is this idea, and, and you hear it often, that we don't need to learn facts anymore, that because of Wikipedia and the internet, facts aren't important. And I guess I'd ask you this question. Haben Sie heute Morgen gefrühstückt? Yeah, I wouldn't have is, much of an answer for you that. Don't, you don't have an answer. <laughs> Look, you can... That is German for, did you eat breakfast this morning? Okay. And the point here is that you, if you have your phone near you, can look up each of those words mm -hmm. on the Internet very rapidly. Frühstück, breakfast. The point and that I'm really trying to press here is that 
having facts ready on the top of your mind is actually really key to learning. So yes, I agree. Wikipedia is a fantastic tool. So many facts there on the internet. But we really need to keep in mind that in order to think richly about something, in order to speak German or Russian or French, you need to actually know those facts. And this is true whether it's foreign languages. It's also true when it comes to you know, learning about astrophysics. Having the facts and memorizing those facts still remains really, really important. Hmm. So you had asked about how does the future of work change the way that we learn. Right. I would argue that it's made the skills of learning to learn how we can learn rapidly much more important. Mm -hmm. What we know about the future of work isn't necessarily what jobs are going to be there, but we do know that we're going to go through much more rapid cycles of change. We're going to see new careers develop in much faster ways. And how people can stay ahead of that curve is having the skill of learning to learn. So these strategies that allow us to first identify what we need to know, figure out ways to practice them in which we actually get better, as well as reflect on how exactly we learn and, and what we've learned in ways that uh, allow us to be more effective learners in the future. Mm-hmm. Ulrich Boser is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. He's the author of the book, Learn Better. Ulrich, thank you so much. Thank you. Don't know much about history. Don't know much biology. And we'll have links to lots of the studies we talked about during this conversation, research on the effect of telling kids they're smart, on the effect of using highlighters, and more. That's at our website, innovationhub.org. And I know that if you love me too, what a wonderful world this would be. One thing we know for sure about acquiring skills in any domain is that it takes time. If you're a math person, think about when you felt like you got good at math. If you're a tennis player or a writer or a knitter, when did you get really skilled at those things? Early adulthood, maybe? or maybe earlier, like 13 or 15, definitely not three. If, uh, you know, you wanted to find somebody who would be, you know, really good at learning to fly a plane, you wouldn't get a toddler. If you wanted to find somebody who was going to be, you know, really fantastic at chess, you wouldn't get a toddler. Like, you have a child, you've spent time with them, you know, they're pretty useless. There's not very much they can do. (laughs) But they can learn language so fast. And why, I mean, and that's the mystery. It seems entirely backwards. That's Joshua Hartshorn, an assistant professor of psychology at Boston College, and me laughing alongside him. The mystery he's talking about is a curious one, because everyone knows kids are good at learning languages. But we don't really know why, and we don't know when that ability starts to diminish. Is there a cutoff? Hartshorn and his colleagues have recently published work aiming to answer that cutoff question. And we'll get to that. But the mystery behind kids' brilliance at learning languages is thornier than you might expect. Because when researchers tried to pin down that brilliance, they couldn't. So back in the 60s, sort of the dawn of cognitive science, a bunch of scientists, you know, all had the idea, oh, this would be perfect. We can study why kids are better at language. We'll bring kids and adults in the laboratory, teach them, you know, a little bit of a foreign language, see what kids do better. And the answer is nothing. Kids do nothing better. Now, of course, we know that when young kids move to America, they're generally much better at picking up English than their parents. Over time, you often can't even tell that they weren't born here. 
Same's true when an American family moves to another country. The kids go to school, and before you know it, their parents' jaws are on the ground, listening to their kids speak Japanese or French or whatever. So researchers, in this case at Harvard, thought, great, we will document all this learning happening. It was a good idea, but things didn't exactly go as planned. They followed immigrants over an entire year of an intensive language program. And even at the end of the year, the older teenagers had learned the most, which is actually what you'd expect based on our data now. But the adults, the second most, the little kids who we know are ultimately going to be the best speakers, had learned the least. So whatever is happening, it's happening over a long time period. And that's right now just in terms of the infrastructure and culture of doing science. We don't have good mechanisms for studying people over that range of time. And it's really hard to do controlled experiments. So you can randomly assign somebody to learn this or that language in the laboratory for an hour. It's very hard to randomly assign somebody to learn Turkish for five years and see what happens. They just don't sign up for those studies. Maybe the researchers couldn't see the evolution, but like Hartshorn said, they knew something powerful was happening in the brains of those tiny kids. When I worked in preschool, that's really interesting because there were kids who had just dropped in with no English and they were able to gradually pick up utterances and start speaking. Robert Chudra immigrated to the U.S. from Poland and he now teaches English as a second language to adults. Kids are amazing in being able to detect minute differences. They just attuned to it. So there I was spending all those years learning English, and kids could tell, even though they were, let's say, four years old. So I spend more time learning English, and then there is a four-year-old who can, you know, precisely pronounce a word that I have they have struggled with after years of studying. The advantage that kids have isn't surprising to Shudra's adult students who take his class at the Boston Chinatown Neighborhood Center. Not long ago, one of those students had to take her husband to the emergency room. It was stressful and technical and complicated. So she got help from her six-year-old. You know, my English, that's not good. So when I first come to the hospital, the nurse, uh, the nurse then asked uh, some question. So some question, we, we don't understand what, what her the talking about the things. Then my daughter very fast then come in. She said, I will translate. <laughs> she told the nurse, I will translate for my mother. <laughs> Part of the reason you've got six-year-olds translating for their parents at the hospital is that if you spend a little time with English learners, you can see why they'd need help. English, not to put too fine a point on it, is a nightmare. Take the word vegetables, which Diego, who hails from Colombia and is also a student at Boston Chinatown Neighborhood Center, is trying to learn. Vegetables, yeah. But the pronunciation vegetables for me was hard because I don't uh, practice every day. Vegetables, vegetables, uh, I can do it. To be fair, English isn't unique. Try learning tones in Chinese or verb placement in German. Pretty much every language is a nightmare. There's many reasons to believe that language isn't learnable. Pretty much the only reason to believe that it is is that people do. But there's you know lots of mathematical proofs that it shouldn't be possible. And it's not actually entirely possible for just about anybody except for young children. And I would like to understand, A, why it's possible to learn at all. And I guess as part of that, what makes kids different from adults that you know, allows kids to do it and adults not. And the first step of that is figuring out when the change is. That's what Joshua Hartshorn, a professor at Boston College, tried to do. He wanted data from people who had learned English, lots of them. 
he ended up with test results from more than 600,000 learners of English. And they were quizzed about quirky bits of the English language. So, you know, the fact that we say the president instead of not, not just president, but we do talk about love, not the love. So even other languages where they also have, you know, the equivalent of the DNA, they may not use the DNA in the same way. So, and our listeners will probably correct me because I'm probably wrong, but I believe that in Spanish you would say the love is wonderful as opposed to love is. And so that turns out to be something that's very hard for non-native speakers to learn. Hartshorn says the debate before his work was whether language ability falls off at zero, age five, or puberty. He and his colleagues found that if your kid missed that preschool immersion program, it's okay. If they're immigrants and they've immigrated before about 10-ish years old, then we just don't see very much difference between them and people who started at age zero. Even beyond 10, they found, kids continue to learn incredibly well. Why? One idea is it could be because over time people get wedded to a certain way that languages work. And once they learn the Korean system, trying to get them to learn the Spanish system, that's not going to be easy. So that is one of the theories, that it's about um, the first language getting in the way of the second one. It's possible. I'm skeptical of that mainly because of the the timeline that we saw. So we're saying that you know people who need to start by about 10 years old, that doesn't mean that their ability to learn goes down at 10 years old. Because if it did go down at 10 years old, then given that learning takes a while, they actually wouldn't have enough time to learn. So we're actually seeing is the ability to learn grammar at least seems to drop around 17 years old, 17 to 18 years old. It's just that you have to start by about 10 in order to have enough time to get to native-like proficiency before your learning ability starts to fall off. So given that, it seems very unlikely that the um, interference from the first language is going to kick in at 17 or 18 years old. I mean, you've learned quite a lot of your first language well before that. doesn't make it impossible. There are mathematical models under which this could happen, but it seems less likely to me than something changing biologically in the brain or potentially something about uh, the difference in your environment. So adults who are learning a language go about it in a very different way from children. Hmm. So I wonder about your view on this. Um, There has been in America a rise in Mandarin immersion and Spanish immersion preschools. If you learn Mandarin in preschool, but nobody at home, let's say, speaks Mandarin, um, do you think that's still an important step towards, like, speaking Mandarin yourself? It depends. Uh, So I actually haven't seen the research on how this turns out. Um, One of the things that people run into is, again, what you want your kids to do and what they want to do aren't always the same thing. And something that a lot of bilingual households run into is, so usually there's, in a bilingual household, if you're not living someplace like Catalonia where everybody is bilingual, you have like a, you know, a home language and then the dominant community language. And once the child figures out that their parents speak the dominant community language, they'll just stop speaking the home language. Because children are not that interested in doing what their parents do. They're interested in doing what their friends do. This is why they don't grow up with the accents of their parents. They grow up with the accents of their friends. So if there's other kids speaking the language, then they'll keep speaking it. If there aren't, that usually doesn't go very well. And so one of the problems, I think, with immersion programs often, not just in America but elsewhere, is if all the kids speak a community language – That's what they're going to speak on the playground, not the thing that they're being taught in school. Hmm. So to that point, we heard from the ESL teacher before, and I want to play you another clip from him 
which I thought was really interesting. And I mean, of course, when we think about language acquisition, we think about the brain and, you know, stages that the brain is going through and kind of this linear thing. But he sort of makes his argument that it goes maybe beyond just capability to drive. Like, what's your drive to learn the language? And uh, yeah, let, let's take a listen to that. If you have somebody younger, it's different because they need to fit in. They need to be become part of and integrate to a much greater extent than than somebody who comes here who's older. So the stakes are a little bit higher. And it, we we talked to a Chinese student in the class who said, you know, for the first little while when I was here and I couldn't really speak English, I just shopped in Chinatown. Like I just I just kind of shopped at places where I didn't have to really go outside my comfort zone. I could speak Chinese to them and that'd be fine. Um, but I think it's really interesting what he identifies that it's not just like a biological thing. It's also this kind of pressure to fit in that maybe older people don't feel. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's got to be part of it. The question is sort of how much. It also doesn't have to be like an either or in the sense that, I mean, why do kids want to fit in so much that if that is biological, that can be like the the mechanism that results in the better language learning and then sort of like everybody is right. But I think one thing that kids don't have control of that adults do, which I suspect is really important, is that children have a lot less control over their environment. So again, like the child cannot choose to only hang out in Chinatown. Like they're in the school that they're in. They've got to make friends there. But yes, who absolutely is an expat can just hang out with other people uh, who speak your language and avoid the rest of the community you know, a fair bit of the time. And since that's so much easier and adults are busy doing other things, you know, a lot of people are going to go that direction. I mean, certainly my non-English languages would be much better if I committed to really speaking them all the time. And and I don't. That's Joshua Hartshorn, an assistant professor of psychology at Boston College. Josh, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. I'm Kara Miller, and today our whole show is about learning, ways of thinking differently, approaches that might give you a leg up in whatever you're trying to get better at. One of the topics Americans seem to struggle most with is math. Every three years, a test called PISA, the Program for International Student Assessment, is given to high schoolers around the world. And in 2015, our normally middling math scores were worse than usual, placing us behind Canada, Slovenia, Israel, Australia, and Vietnam, and just edging out Croatia and Kazakhstan. For some parents in America, extracurricular math programs, if you can afford them, have become an essential way to succeed in math. One program run by the Russian School of Mathematics for students from kindergarten through high school now has nearly 50 branches and serves over 30,000 students. Innovation Hub senior producer Elizabeth Ross visited a class at its headquarters in Newton, Massachusetts, to find out why Russian math is catching on. It's early on a chilly Saturday morning at the Russian School of Mathematics in Newton. But 10-year-old Sebastian Sobe doesn't seem to mind. He's already deeply engrossed in three hours of advanced math. Measure three is 63 Today, Sebastian's sixth-grade geometry class is exploring angles and parallel lines. His teacher, Miss Marina, 
is standing in front of the class at a large blackboard with chalk in hand. And as soon as she asks a question, Sebastian's hand shoots right up. Then what will be your transversal, Sebastian, here? So the transversal will be R in that case. R is the transversal. There's no doubt that Sebastian, who's been coming here since kindergarten, enjoys numbers. I love math. It's probably my favourite subject in school. But it's the way that math is taught at the Russian School of Mathematics, or RSM for short, that appeals to Sebastian. Here, the teachers present challenging mathematical concepts at a young age and then return to these concepts again and again. And the teaching style is very direct, no fluff on it. And that's really what I like about RSM. When you say no fluff on it, what do you mean? Fluff is when you introduce outside topics that just make the problem harder to understand and it's not at all direct. Sebastian already has a pretty good idea about how he intends to use all this math without any fluff on it. When I grow up, I definitely want to be kind of an inventor but also an aeronautical engineer and the math that I'm learning now has a lot to apply to aeronautics especially in the geometry part of it and the algebra I would use to like calculate trajectories for like rockets or planes. So definitely a future in space. (laughs) Yeah I'm a Trekkie. (laughs) Um, I've wanted to always be an astrophysicist for a really long time 15-year-old Rhea Mishra is dreaming about space too. She's in 10th grade, and like Sebastian, she's been coming to RSM since kindergarten. I feel like the teachers really do make a point of making sure that you actually do understand what you're doing before you actually apply it, because otherwise you won't be able to apply it into like a real-life situation if you don't know how it works or why it works. It's difficult to measure the impact of all this extra advanced math on students like Ria and Sebastian. But one thing is clear with the RSM students I meet. They're way ahead of their classmates in math at school. Ria's mother, whose name is Rinki Priamfada, proudly tells me that her daughter took the math portion of the SATs back in seventh grade. She did very well, which was when we called like our relatives and all. They said, you can't let her take it now. You know, people really prepare for it and stuff. And she got a very high score. So we were kind of really surprised, you know. None of the students I speak with are worried about being ahead of their peers in math. Just take Rohan Prabhu. Like Ria, he's also in 10th grade. Here they teach the math a year in advance. So you go into your, your regular school class and you've already done it before. And so... In high school, I've been able to skip, like, multiple grades of math, so I'm in Calc 2 right now as a sophomore. Does it feel repetitive, though, or when you have already done the math? I mean, yeah, but you finish very fast, and it's, like, it's it's really just very easy to you. So we teach children to think. Olga Pristian is the principal of the Russian School of Mathematics in Newton, along with two other branches outside of Boston. She insists the school doesn't just pride itself on having students with good grades, but on helping students develop critical thinking. In the classrooms, our main question is why, not how, but why. What is the logic behind every concept? What is the logic behind every formula? And with those logic and reasoning skills, parents whose kids study Russian math are convinced their children will have the keys to solving many 
of life's problems. Okay, very good. Next one is 760 minus 40 divided by 9. I'm going to give you one second to solve it. For Innovation Hub, I'm Elizabeth Russ in Newton, Massachusetts. We'll talk in a few minutes about why the incredible popularity of after-school math programs, Russian math is just one of them, may pose some serious issues for teachers, for schools, and maybe even for students. But first, where did this approach, which has particularly taken hold in affluent suburbs over the past few years, where did it come from? Well, there are a few answers to that. One of them is simple. It came from a boy whose mother realized he couldn't add fractions, specifically fractions with two different denominators, like one-half plus one-third. And it wasn't the fact that he didn't understand that specific concept that was the reality check for her. It was that he couldn't figure out a way to try and figure it out. Masha Gershman knows this story because the boy who couldn't add fractions was her brother. And her mom, an engineer who had immigrated from the Soviet Union, was shocked by what she was seeing. Meaning that he couldn't dig into what he already knew to try and approach it or to try and derive it or to, you know, try and piece different things together to see how he might look at it. And more than that, the fact that it was hard and the fact that it was unknown made him to shut down, essentially close off. And so all of those different factors really encompassed the fact that math here is taught in a very, very different way, kind of philosophically and holistically. The experience ultimately led Gershman's mother, Anessa Rifkin, to found the Russian School of Mathematics, along with Irina Havinson. The school's early days were at the family's kitchen table, often supported by other immigrant families who were similarly disappointed by how math was taught in the U.S., And these were families who didn't just want their kids filling out worksheets. They wanted them to understand concepts like fractions. The real question is, okay, let's take a step back. What are fractions? What do they represent? How can we think about them in a different context? Forget about what the problem's asking you. What are they? Was it easier for you to think about it in terms of pizza or, you know, people at a party or different things? So it was very much, I don't know how to do this versus... The approach that she was raised with, which is, what is this? Why? What are they asking us to do? How can I use what I already know, or how can I look at it from a different point of view to solve it? So that's one answer to the question of, where did the Russian School of Mathematics come from? But here's another, broader answer. During the space race, essentially, the Soviet Union realized that they couldn't compete with the U.S. when it came to resources. But the one benefit of a totalitarian regime is that you can force all of your top academic minds into education. And that's really what they did. Hmm. Um, do you think the Russian approach is unique in the world? Because, you know, we, we started by talking about the PISA test, which is administered to dozens of countries, I think 70 plus countries. Um, a lot of the countries that do really well are countries like Japan does very well. Finland does very well. Singapore does very well. Is this a different approach, you think, than other countries are using? Are they using this approach, too? I would say yes and no, meaning that it is very much unique in the world. But if you look at a lot of old Chinese textbooks and Indian textbooks, and a lot of our parents actually tell us the same thing, you will see that they were actually either using textbooks from the Soviet Union or using something that was very heavily based off of that. So I think that it's permeated the world in a lot of different ways. 
Okay, so let's talk about um, specific ways that you think that Russian math is different from like what American kids are right now being taught in school. So like I said, so math in the U.S. has typically been taught as just kind of a collection of facts that are disjointed that kids have to memorize. Math in Russia and the Soviet Union, the meaning of math was completely different. So it was historically seen as a tool to develop the mind, a tool for mental empowerment. So we believe that kids are capable of abstract thinking very early. And what's more, with just like with languages or with instruments, it's actually better to start early because they're more flexible, they're kind of more adept at learning that type of thing, and you can build fluency. So we never memorize. Kids are asked to actually derive new concepts based on what they already know. And they actually see concepts in a variety of different contexts and situations. And that really enables them to problem solve, experiencing problems they've never seen before because they've seen these concepts in a variety of different ways and they can figure out kind of how to apply them. So the result, of course, is kids who understand math deeply. But more importantly, they actually start to think completely differently. Okay, so let's take yeah. an, uh, a problem or yeah. two and talk about how the Russian approach might be different from the approach that we might have all seen. And sure, sure. So let's take you know the concept of addition, for okay. example. So in early elementary school, in kindergarten, first grade, you'll see something like one plus four equals what? And kids will be asked to solve that, right? And you'll see a lot of different examples or permutations of that. A kindergartner or first grader in our school might see something like a balance scale that's currently balanced. On one side, you have a one-pound weight and a teddy bear. And on the other side, you'll have a five-pound weight. And the teacher will start a conversation with them and will say, how much does a teddy bear weigh? So at a very high level, it's the same problem, right? One plus four equals five. Mm -hmm. But really what they're looking at is an equation. That's an equation, and that's essentially algebraic and abstract thinking where the kids have to reason why is the balance scale balanced? What does that mean about the teddy bear? And how do we get it to a point where it's balanced? So it's a very different approach to, to that specifically. Now, why is it better? I mean, I, I can see that 1 plus 4 equals 5 is, you know, on a piece of paper, 1 plus 4 equals what on a, in a regular class is one thing. And then, you know, a 1-pound weight uh, plus a teddy bear. And then on the other side, a 5-pound weight is basically the same problem. Why is one better than the other? You're lifting them to a completely different type of thinking. So one is arithmetic. One plus four equals what is arithmetic. It's very straightforward, right? They can count it on their fingers, essentially. The other one is a completely different higher order level of thinking. It's abstract thinking. They have to understand what the concept of a balanced scale is, what that implies about the teddy bear, and then essentially solve that problem in a completely different way. That's Masha Gershman, director of outreach at the Russian School of Mathematics, talking about a program that has exploded over the past few years with branches from California to Kentucky, Illinois to Maryland. The question, though, of how it and other programs like it are affecting American math education is a controversial one. John Starr studies how kids learn math, and he teaches teachers how to teach it at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He says, if you're wondering why Americans don't do well on the PISA test, that international exam in which the U.S. struggles just to hit the middle of the pack, there's a lot of reasons that don't have much to do with our approach to math. 
We're a very diverse country. We don't honor teachers as much as many other countries do. We don't tend to send our kids to cram schools, which are popular in lots of places. But he thinks that the notion that math today is all about memorization, not high-level concepts, that's not quite right. Because in some of the high-performing countries, for example, in China, who who do exceptionally well in these tests, they focus a lot on memorization. And so it's not as simple as that. Starr actually thinks, when it comes to math, American schools are improving, which is worth taking note of. There have been incredible reforms over the past, let's say, 30 years in the way that we talk about math teaching, the the curriculum that we produce about math teaching, the way we do teacher training. I think it's been an area of incredible growth. And we have a lot of ground left to cover, but I think we're really improving. And I think we know what we need to do. It's the question of actually doing it. And interestingly, I think this has mostly been realized in the elementary grades. That's where we have the most innovation and the most impact on teaching. And again, lots of room to grow still, but I think we're doing a lot better than we were before. Uh, Less so in the high school area. That's a harder nut to crack to get high school teachers to change the way they teach. But yes. Does it surprise you that we've seen, it seems like, an upsurge in the last decade or so of parents putting their kids in sort of after school or weekend classes that focus on making them better at math? I haven't seen data that really shows us specifically there's been an upsurge, but I would agree with you that based on the people that I talk to, there's a lot of that going on, especially among the more wealthy parents in the suburban environments or the urban environments where parents have more disposable income, that is definitely becoming very popular. Um, But I think it's tricky to wonder, is that actually an upsurge? If you look back a generation ago, there were different after-school programs that that hit the market. So Kumon, for example, was, and to some extent is, a huge after-school market for many parents. Um, It's not as hot or popular in some parts of the country, maybe as it was a generation ago, I guess a related point that I would make, though, is I think it's important that we start asking what are the reasons why parents are seeking out these extra help for their students, if that's what they're doing, extra help. There are some reasons that parents may be doing that that I think are understandable and legitimate and valid. And if that's what parents want to do and what their kids want to do, then wonderful. So, for example, parents may discover that their kids, very young kids, are passionate and interested and curious about math. And anything that parents can do to further that is wonderful. So these after-school programs that try to build on kids' curiosity, fantastic. The more, the better. Similarly, we know that a lot of kids, especially girls, begin to lose interest in math in the, around middle school, which is very troubling. And so if a child generally, but especially a young girl, is interested in math and a parent wants to maintain that interest, to continue that interest through middle school, those challenging years, wonderful. After-school programs can really serve that need. But I think what we're seeing in addition to that is some parents feeling like they need to send their child to enrichment after-school math to either keep up with everyone else at the school or in their neighborhood or because there's this perception that that will improve your chances to do X, to get into this private school or to get into this university. And I'm not sure that's always the case, that getting that enrichment after-school class will serve that goal for parents. It's also the case that when these students, especially the older students, I see this in middle school and high school especially, when they go to the after-school program with the goal of getting ahead, they often do get ahead, but as a result, they're quite bored when they go to school. 
And so I talk to teachers a lot who are teaching classes where a significant number of students are taking after-school enrichment courses, and they've already seen what the teacher is covering that day or that week, and they're bored. Um, And if the parents are sending the students to the after-school programs to further their curiosity and their interest in math, only to go to school to be bored and lose interest in math, that seems counterproductive to me. And so I think that there's some nuanced decision-making that parents are making, need to be making when they think about sending their, their, their children to these programs. Is it really helpful for your child to get a year ahead in math? And why? John Starr is a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He studies how kids learn math. And by the way, he says he's felt pressure to put his own kids in after-school math programs. Mostly, his kids don't do those sorts of programs, but he's tried it. And when he did, he looked for something very specific. We wanted one that wasn't just covering the same curriculum that the public schools or the private schools cover. The goal was not just to give them a preview or an advanced exposure to the same topics. We wanted them to be doing a different kind of math. And so there are some programs where they expose elementary school students to some university math concepts, but at a very young age. And we found that to be very powerful and very interesting. And it sparked curiosity with this child of mine. And I actually really like that kind of program. On our website, we've got more coverage of how math education is changing in America. And many experts think we're in the midst of a seismic shift. That's at innovationhub.org. And we'd love to hear from you. Have you sent your kids to an after-school math program? Why? How was it? And if you've resisted doing that, we're interested in your story, too. Email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also got production help from Wen Lei and Asil Kibbe. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.